Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. I often think of this point in my life, my inane, soulless conduct in not communicating with family, and thus raise a cheery ray of pleasure for the last flickering moments of mother's life. I bow my head to the sacred word in mute reproach. Why did I not think of her then as I often do now? Why did I allow the glacial sheet to wrap me in its frigid folds, freeze the warm currents of maternal kindred affections? Why? I, why? This in its age of whys, putting off, putting off, procrastination did it. I. End quote. Colin Robertson Sinclair wrote these words in a letter after he had returned to the place of his birth, specifically the Red River Colony, to reunite with his family. Everyone from his immediate family was gone by the time he returned except his sister Mary. What a strange feeling that must have been for him. His nieces and nephews had stories to share with him and he had stories for them. In September of 1823, Colin was sent in a longboat to board the Prince of Wales, anchored in Five Fathom Hole in Hudson's Bay near York Factory. His mother would not have been allowed to go with him. He shared his story with nieces and nephews upon his return. He told them he fell asleep on the ship and woke to find his father gone and cried. But his father had died two years earlier, so his memory of that day isn't accurate. He thought he was only going on board to see what the ship was like. That's how he remembers it as a seven-year-old. Mary witnessed her mother's grief at losing her youngest child and would have told Colin how Nahuay spent each day on a piece of limestone at the edge of the Red River waiting for the boats to come from York Factory and bring her son home to her. Day after day during her time at the colony, she sat beside the river. Reverend John West was aboard the Prince of Wales that day in 1823, and according to his journal, all began smoothly on the voyage. On September 21st, they passed Cape Charles at the entrance to Hudson Strait, and all that changed. Temperatures dropped severely, snow fell, the ship was dodging icebergs, a hurricane blew that evening, the heavens black. On September 27th in the evening, as they approached Resolution Island, they found themselves in Atlantic waters with more room to maneuver, the icebergs no longer a threat. Can you imagine a seven-year-old who has never even seen a boat, let alone been on one, on stormy seas without his parents, without his mother? The wind and extreme waves were relentless for most of the crossing until on October 15th, they passed Hoyhead in the Orkneys where a pilot came on board to guide them into the Strumness Harbour. 
Robert Seaborn Miles, a family friend, was on board the ship and may have made certain Colin was united with Jane and husband James Kirkness before Miles continued to London. Up to this point, Oxford House had been Colin's only home, a home surrounded by wilderness and beauty and quiet, his mother the teacher of life skills. Parish schools were the norm in Orkney in 1823. It is likely Colin lived with Jane and James Kirkness, as in Colin's will prepared many years later, he first names the Kirkness children. It seems odd that Colin would not have communicated with his family back at Oxford House if he lived with Jane. Perhaps Jane did write to her mother and sisters, but we have no way of knowing. Colin was so young, and the trauma of leaving his mother and the journey on the ship on his own likely affected his memory of earlier childhood days. When Colin was finished his schooling, he considered himself a European, and he found work on merchant ships instead of returning to Hudson Bay. He was given an annual annuity from his father's estate, and when he reached the age of 21 in 1837, he received a large sum of money set aside for him in his father's will. He used the funds to buy shares in a ship, eventually becoming the captain and owner. Collins' adventures took him to California sometime in the 1840s, to San Francisco at the peak of the gold rush. There, most of his crew deserted him in the pursuit of gold. He eventually sold his ship and became a harbor master somewhere on the California coast. Shortly after his arrival in California, Brother James learned of Collins' presence in San Francisco. They came very close to meeting, but fate had other ideas, and they missed each other. In a letter dated 18th of July, 1873, Harriet Cowan, daughter of James Sinclair, wrote to her cousin telling of the news that Colin Sinclair was still alive and living in San Francisco. Harriet heard the news from her sister Jessica, whose friend lived in San Francisco and knew that Captain Colin Sinclair was inquiring about his brother James. Charles McKay, brother-in-law to James Sinclair, spoke to Colin and told him of James's death in 1856. McKay shared with the Sinclair family the details of his visit with Colin. This meeting started letters going back and forth between Colin and his nieces and nephews and his sister Mary. Colin continued to write to Jessica Sinclair, sister of Harriet Sinclair Cowan, According to a column written for the Morning Telegram, Colin went to the Red River Colony, now Winnipeg, in 1881 and resided there for 20 years until his death, living with Mary during that time until her death in 1892. At Mary's death, it was written, quote, Mrs. Inkster was a grand old lady, respected and beloved by all who were fortunate enough to become acquainted with her. She was remarkable for her liberality and largeness of heart. Her personality was a very special feature in the early history of the settlement, and her influence will be largely felt. End quote. No mention was made of her mother and her contribution and women of her era to the Hudson's Bay Company's success and the success of the colony. According to Mary's son, Colin Inkster, Colin Sinclair fitted up the room in his sister's home, Seven Oaks, to resemble that of a ship's captain, complete with hammock in which he slept. 
Colin returned to England in 1894-1895, where he became ill and was hospitalized for a time. In 1896, he wrote a detailed letter to John Inkster, his nephew, the grandson of his sister Mary, sharing many of his thoughts. Donna Sutherland transcribed the letter into her book, doing her best to get the wording correct from the faint print and poetic language. It isn't an easy read. I opened this episode with an excerpt. Colin blamed procrastination for not communicating with his family, but Donna felt something deeper caused him to turn away from his roots. He left home as such a young child and was educated in a system that fueled racism and the notion that Brits were elevated above the character of those who lived and were born in North America. In this way, that stance helped create the distance for all of us who followed to lose the connection to our Cree roots, to lose our connection to Nahue. I believe this is why Nahue came to Donna in a dream, to have her story told, to be held up as the example she was of the world she lived in before it all began to change. In 1896, Colin left England to return home. He arrived in Montreal and then continued to Winnipeg. He designed the monument for his mother's grave and had it built. The rose-colored granite came from Peterhead, Scotland, a port town on the northeast coast, north of Aberdeen. The limestone was representative of the stone that Nahoy sat upon, waiting and hoping for Colin's return. The pink granite was shaped to resemble the steeply pitched roof of Seven Oaks, the house where Nahoy died. Colin wrote his will 19th of June, 1898, naming Amelia Kirkness first, the daughter of Jane, and the second person named was Merrick, the unmarried daughter of his sister Mary. Colin took his last breath at the home of Mary Todd, where his great-niece Agnes Inkster, granddaughter of Mary Sinkler, cared for him. He died at 6 p.m. on 22nd of July, 1901, at the age of 85. In the write-up of his death, it is acknowledged that it was Colin's poetry that was engraved upon his mother's grave monument. Family lore says that a crying voice could be heard in St. John's Cathedral after Nahaway's death, but when Colin was laid beside her, the crying was quieted. I have a photo of Colin Robertson Sinclair. His face is kind, his eyes expressive, his hair fair, his eyes eyes most likely blue, his expression somewhat sad and regretful, perhaps over the time lost between he and Nahue. This brought me to the end of my research of the time during Nahue's life. She experienced so many changes during her lifetime. The landscape of the northern wilderness that she grew up in, that was her home for most of her life, and then to live in a community of structure and business and commerce. She was placed in a Tikkanagan, a cradleboard, shortly after her birth where she learned patience and restraint, the motion of her mother Thukach lulling her into sleep, the almost constant connection to her mother, the warmth of her, the sound of her voice, even the beating of her heart. To have her son taken away from her in childhood and sent to Europe for education would have been a heartbreaking experience for her. 
Nahue grew up watching the white whales in the Churchill River, picking wildflowers and berries, snaring small game, tanning hides, making clothing and footwear and snowshoes, doing beadwork, chopping and hauling wood, gathering roots and herbs and grasses for medicinal and spiritual purposes. Her mother taught her the Cree language and her connection to Fort Prince of Wales, and the men who were employed employed there would have given her the second language of English. She grew up being on the outside, so to speak, of Fort Prince of Wales, then to marry and be on the inside of the Hudson's Bay Company from her husband's perspective. Also from her mother, she would have learned the deep-rooted spiritual beliefs the Cree had relied on to survive, both mentally and physically, a belief system that she was required to outwardly dismiss in her later years when she moved to the Red River Colony, for to live there and be counted required Christianity. She agreed to be baptized where she was required to bear an English name, but only, I believe, to satisfy those with the power. She did not use the name Margaret. Thukach was Nahoe's mother. I have made the assumption George Holt was her father. Harriet Sinkler, Nahoe's granddaughter, told W.J. Healy that George Holden was Nahoe's father. Holden and Holt sound very similar in the Cree language, and there is no evidence of a George Holden having worked for the Hudson's Bay Company. If George Holden was indeed Nahoe's father, then she would have had very little time with him. Holt signed on with the Hudson's Bay Company in 1768, coming and going on the fall ship. In 1769, he again sailed to Churchill to work at Fort Prince of Wales. In the fall of 1771, George Holt carved his name in the rocks of Sloop Cove just before his departure from the fort to return to England. The carving is still visible. Holt had been very close to the Cree people, living and hunting with them. He signed a new contract with the Hudson's Bay Company in 1779 and sailed back to Churchill to serve under Samuel Hearn. On board the ship were members of Thukach's family, further confirmation he was involved with her. Holt carried out expeditions to the north during the summer to trade with the Dene people. George Holt was returning from one such trading expedition when he found Fort Prince of Wales destroyed in 1782. He was able to outrun the French ship who took up chase of him. He escaped into Hudson Strait and sailed back to Europe. We must remember that he was returning to Fort Prince of Wales at the end of the season and would have had little or no supplies or fresh water remaining on the sloop Charlotte, arriving at Plymouth the middle of October after a crossing of two months. The London Committee insisted he stay at Plymouth until he could be accompanied to London by a ship of war. When he did sail, he lost the nemesis and was captured by the French. He had purchased food for the crew while in Plymouth without permission from the London Committee, and it seems they left him in a French prison because of the debt. Thirteen men were released 11th of December 1782, but George Holt was not among them. He was still imprisoned on the 2nd of April 1783, No further account of George Holt was discovered, and it is possible he may have died in a French prison. He had saved the Charlotte sloop from the French in Hudson Bay, and the load of furs traded from the Dene people, but Holt was discarded due to purchasing food for his starving crew suffering from scurvy.
If George Holt was Nahoy's father, then her mother would have been pregnant with her before Holt sailed back to England late in 1771. If Thuf Koch became pregnant after Holt returned in 1779, that would have made Nahoy two years old when the French destroyed the fort, and it would have been highly unlikely for her to survive the journey to York when so many died. The family spoke of the child losing her voice. A two-year-old doesn't have much of a voice by that age. Further evidence of Thukach being Nahoy's mother is in a letter dated August 31, 1790. Thukach is, quote, married to one of the best Indian home guards, and this is significant because William Sinclair spent a lot of time with Cree hunters and was highly regarded. This great hunter might have offered Nahoy to William because they are purported to have married in 1790, and if she was born in 1772, then she would have been 18, which is reasonable. In consideration of all those facts, it seems most likely to me she was born in 1772. But again, none of that really matters. Nahaway's life of foraging for medicinal plants, for small game and berries, of trapping, changed to a life in a culture based on farming when she moved to the Red River Colony. That would require some major adaptation, but she had learned to do so before, and she would do it again. She hadn't lived outside of Oxford House for 26 years. Food shortages in 1825, after she moved, were significant, according to the Upper Fort Gary Journal. This wasn't new to her, but the remedy was not within her control. The buffalo had all been eliminated, and the caribou were out of reach for those at the Red River Colony. As I researched and read the thousands of pages about life during the fur trade, I was struck by the significant difference in culture between Indigenous people and Europeans, between then and now, beyond the obvious, I mean. Indigenous women played valued and essential roles in the structure of what we now call community. Tasks were gender divided, but not because of patriarchy, but because of a differing set of skills. Our history has unequivocally relied on the writings of European men for the details, men who gave few nods of understanding to the world they were observing and even less to the role of women. Survival of Indigenous women depended upon their ability to trap small animals, to make clothing and tools, to forage, and to support one another in childbirth, which, I might add, they did not undertake while lying on their backs. Survival of European women, simply put, was to marry well. Survival of Indigenous men was to work in collaboration with Indigenous women. Survival of European men employed in the fur trade was to secure the assistance and wisdom of Indigenous women. Indigenous women were at the center of thriving and survival. Nahue's life had been a rich one one of heartbreak and loss, but also of discovery and comfort. She held fast to her Cree roots and her culture, but did so in private. I was surprised by the often crossing of paths of my maternal ancestors with the more current pieces of my father's life. I am bettered for having spent this time bent over books and reading faint journals and struggling with the language of that day. I am bettered.
for having found Nahuay. Hi, hi. That is thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. It's been quite a journey. This brings us to the end of season one. The next episodes will be my journey to the remains of Fort Prince of Wales in Churchill, Manitoba, and time spent at the Hudson's Bay Company archives within the Manitoba archives. I hope you'll join me. Bye for now.